From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 281 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. So, Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Michael? I am doing well. We've, we always seem to talk about weather, but we had three, no, four glorious days of 70-degree weather, sun, which we hadn't seen in weeks, and all that. And now it's going to rain, <laughs> rain for the <laughs> next four or five days. Yeah, I, uh, I've been kind of keeping up with your weather a little bit. My family was in Southern California for a couple days, and then they decided to drive more uh, more north and also into other states so they they went through and popped through Vegas and then uh, kept going to like Bryce and Zion so I feel like kind of at the same level as you probably probably a lot of the same weather starts uh, drifting past there and they said it's been a couple glorious days mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I some of the pictures I saw I'm like yeah I I would love to be out there right now. Better anything's better than Florida. So, but we've been we've been so great here. It's been it, we've had a couple blue sky days, but it's just been so much gray and it's 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 really hard to get motivated when it's like 95% humidity <laughs> in, in the 80s and then like not a single bit of sun around. But yeah. we'll make do. We'll have the weather will be good once again on Walt Disney World and Universal. <laughs> yes and i'm sure that our folks who are digging out of snow and all that will are thinking be quiet <laughs> they, they don't know how good they have it it waters the lawn you know after it kills the lawn then it waters it it's it yeah, snow there's so many good reasons to to have snow versus like orlando which i i feel like no one ever like actually believes when i say it but I feel like we spend nine months out of the year in a drought and we're in a drought right now. It's just, it's what always happens. So I, I would be happy to take any snow that anyone wants to send down this way or just bottles of water. <laughs> that also works too. I, I don't know why. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Send your, send your, your bottles to Craig, to Craig. There. <laughs> Full of snow. <laughs> Well, in our previous episode of Connecting with Walt, we began a discussion of one of Walt's nine old men, Milt Kahl. As we learned, Milt had a reputation for having a bit of a temper. 
He could be described as cold, competitive, opinionated, and a perfectionist, but he also devoted a lot of time to helping his fellow animators, and many describe Milt as having a sweet and generous side once you got to know him and proved that you were a hard worker and wanted to develop your draftsmanship and animation skills. Milt set the look for Disney Animation. In an interview, Milt said Walt would assign characters to animators, but instruct Milt to provide two minutes of animation before handing the assignments off to the animators. Call's family life was not without its challenges. Call, his wife Laura, and their children, Sybil and Peter, lived in the Los Feliz Hills. After work, Milt and Laura wound down with cocktails as Milt completed a crossword puzzle and listened to classical music on 78 RPM records. They enjoyed socializing and spending time with friends. Call's children found him to be distant until they grew older and could do the things their father enjoyed doing, like fly fishing at Lake Sherwood or Hot Creek. Trouble began brewing in the call marriage in the mid-1950s when Laura began to grow discontented and felt life was not fulfilling. She developed a drinking problem, and not that she drank a lot, just that she couldn't handle what she did drink. They began to argue over money, and Call would go fishing to get away from Laura. After the children moved out, Milt downsized, and he and Laura moved to a smaller home on Griffith Park Boulevard, which Milt sparsely furnished with Danish modern. Laura preferred antiques and was very unhappy with this move. She gave her antique secretary, which Laura said was the best piece of furniture she and Milt bought when they were married, to Alice Davis because she couldn't bear selling it to a stranger. When Walt passed in 1966, Milt wept at the news and at Walt's funeral. He regarded Walt as irreplaceable and said, our best man died. Walt would face, a call would face another tragedy in just a few months. Call was on a fishing trip in the high Sierras. Upon his return, he learned that Laura had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Call had bought her a gun as protection when she when he was away on fishing trips, but she had never learned to use it. According to his son Peter, when Call read the coroner's report that it was suicide, Call was devastated and yelled and cried hysterically. Afterwards, he apologized to Peter for his outburst and said it was time he got on with his life. Call purchased a sporty Jaguar and rented an apartment in the La Brea Towers in downtown Los Angeles. He installed four-inch thick red shag carpet and furnished it with teak furniture. Call was nearly 60 years old at this point. Shortly afterwards, Mark and Alice Davis introduced him to 49-year-old Phyllis Bounds. This is a familiar name to longtime listeners of Connecting with Walt. Phyllis Bounds was the niece of Walt Disney's wife Lillian and had worked as an ink and paint girl before heading the ink and paint TV commercial unit in the late 1950s. This is the unit that had experimented with xerography instead of hand inking cells. When Milt and Phyllis were introduced, she was 49, wealthy, hard drinking, hard smoking, and known to friends as fun-loving Phil. Besides the positions I already mentioned at the studio, she had also been a TV commercial coordinator and a talent scout for the studio. 
She owned several properties and the Bounds Art Gallery. She was artistic, loved luxury, was tough, opinionated, and generous. Eight months after the death of Laura, Milt and Phyllis were married. Call was Phyllis's fourth husband. Previously, she had been married to a Walt Disney Studio gas station attendant, a Disney storyman, and the fashion photographer George Harrell. Wait, the, uh, so she was married to three people, or George Harrell was all three of those things at one point in time? <laughs> no, she was married to three people before. Okay. It, it, no judgment on that. <laughs> I, I, I was reading along with you there, and I was like, I didn't know if that was the full setup for George, that he started off as a Walt Disney Studio gas station attendant and then became a story man and then a fashion photographer. I'm like, wow, this guy's got a got a career but three different people that that makes more sense i'm honestly she sounds like a really fun person i mean fun loving phil why (laughs) why not so uh, i i'm sure it's probably exactly what milt needed after facing the tragedy that he did and it seemed like there was a lot of underlying causes and a lot of you know just a lot of unhappiness that probably was not something that was really dealt with back in that time period. And unfortunately, if it was dealt with, it is probably dealt in the ways that it all played out, which just is, is so, so, so sad. But uh, I'm, it's, it is, it's nice to see that at least there was a silver lining and he was able to come out on the other side with, uh, you know, with at least finding someone for about pretty, pretty quickly, relatively quickly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, the stories that I read, Sybil and Peter, his children, who are adults by this time, really liked her. Yeah. Uh, they talked about how she was generous. You'd visit, and then she would say, she'd break out the caviar and the champagne. And then you'd walk away with a pile of like Picasso, um, prints and and you know, and these were high-end prints that she would have in her gallery you just she just give them to them and and so, so she, i'm assuming it's the gallery that probably uh where she got her money from not her her uh, day jobs with the studio right she and filled she, up wealth she also owned a couple of properties that were very well located mm-hmm. one she rented out to a very well-known restaurant at the time and then the and then the, some were residential properties and then and then another one had um you know the the gallery was like on the ground floor and then there gotcha. were residential properties uh, above wow so. i i got i until you know until you we kind of sent over what we were talking about i did not know any of uh, this part of milt's life mm-hmm. so i'll i'll let you get on with the story though <laughs> Well, the newlyweds moved to a penthouse in Century City, which Phyllis decorated with furniture from a French chateau, some of which was so large and heavy, it had to be lifted by a crane through the window. The other half of the penthouse floor was shared with actor David Jansen, who at the time was best known for his role as Richard Kimball in the television series The Fugitive and David Jansen's girlfriend. Jansen hung stereo equipment on the wall adjacent to Call's bedroom and blasted rock and roll music. The two neighbors were always yelling and screaming at each other. The Calls traveled frequently to Europe so Phyllis could purchase art to sell in her gallery and milk to fly fish. 
It was during this time that Milt discovered Picasso, Chagall, and Henry Moore. Never caring much about his personal appearance, Phyllis introduced him to the finest haberdashers, and he soon became a fine dresser. dresser. Alice Davis said the only problem was that whatever Phyllis introduced Milt to, he soon bested her. She stated, for instance, Phyllis started tap dancing and Milt soon became a better tap dancer than she. Phyllis took up piano playing and soon Milt was playing the piano better than Phyllis. This caused a lot of bickering between them. Peter Call believed they were too much alike. After 10 years of marriage, they amicably divorced. Milt claimed Phyllis got tired of being a wife. Animator Richard Williams believes Milt based the character of Madame Medusa in The Rescuers partly on Phyllis with the, quote, aging sex pot looks and flamboyance, unquote. Phyllis wore boots and Medusa wore boots. In the scene where Medusa removes her false eyelashes, friends knew that was based on Phyllis. When asked if that were so, Call never admitted it and simply said he just knew about those things. Yikes. Uh, I'm, I had to Google an image of her right now to see uh, see if she had any uh, resemblance to the character. And I, I came to see it. Okay. Because <laughs> I think she looks a lot like Geraldine Page as well, the, who's the voice actor for Madame Medusa. Yeah. I I mean, I I don't Maybe it's just now saying it. And like when you look at it after the fact, you start noticing similarities, even if they probably really aren't there. But I, I, I don't know. It could be it could be close <laughs> there. That would be that would be a little harsh considering, uh, you know, it said that they were amicably divorced. <laughs> so it, that would be a rough move afterwards. But man, it's it just melt. It's like, yeah, you have to congratulate him for, for finding happiness after tragedy. And then he goes and starts this one upmanship that he just had to do. And it's like, what you can't just let someone be good at something at some point I, in time, I not in your career, he, not I at home. I don't think he could. I think that was part of his compensation. He always, you know, overcompensation for things. He always had to be the best at everything. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I, too bad he never made it into sports. I would have loved to see <laughs> how he performed. <laughs> yeah, but you know, he was always trying. You know, he always said, "You, you can't stop trying." Yeah, and and he so it shows just how skilled and talented he oh, was. Yeah. It, there's yeah. a lot to respect and admire with it, but at the same time, too, yeah, like you know what? Yeah, what's the what's the saying? You catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> Call's retirement date from the studio was April 30th, 1976, and it was anything but amicable. Since Walt's passing, Call believed that nothing was the same at the studio, and he did not feel he had the support from the top as he had with Walt. Said Call, Ron Miller and I didn't get along to start with, and so I just decided the hell with these guys. And I made a lot of demands. I wanted a separate card on the title saying that I did Medusa and Ron Miller wouldn't go for any of it. He didn't give me a goddamn thing. Also, some animators felt Call's method of animation was no longer working for the studio and they were no longer following him. 
Cobb was becoming more influenced by Picasso and his animation was becoming more impressionistic, which didn't work for the characters. When Frank Thomas confronted Call on a particular scene, he said, what kind of scene is that? Look at that. It's all sort of designy stuff happening and not so much the acting or the character. Call was offended by Thomas's criticism. How do you feel about that? Because I, you know, I'm thinking about it from today's perspective where we're kind of reaching this new age of animation, you know, even after Pixar revolutionized everything with with its 3D artwork and Disney got on board, everyone got on board, but now we're just we're in a different realm with everything that Spider-Verse did and other other studios trying to dip into that same stylistic look. Uh it's clear that what modern day audiences want is just something out of the box, not the same thing over and over and over again. That might not have been the case back then. People were happy with that. But I like I hear that, that he was trying to start doing new things and and becoming influenced by new artists and, and taking new leaps with it. Like, I actually really respect that, that he wasn't just trying to do the same thing over and over. And you know what? Maybe it didn't always work, but maybe the studio would have ended up in a better place than where it did in the the late 70s and 80s had they taken more chances that mm-hmm. way no i th- i think your comments are correct and i think it was in this era from everything i read that call was starting to go off in a different direction we sort of started seeing it with 101 dalmatians yeah. and um in his style and i think some of this as i read this this was the antithesis of what frank thomas liked and some of the other animators. So I think they're definite from everything I read, there definitely was a struggle. And I think some of the other comments we're going to hear about call, you know, maybe call was in the right on some of this. I, it's, I guess my opinion and take on it is, you know, once we're getting to this time period with the movies, if Walt Disney, films animated films live action films were based on you know excellent storytelling uh, there's a very solid argument to say that the movies of this time period were not good storytelling and mm-hmm. so if you don't have a good story the best way to pull people in is by interesting characters mm-hmm. uh, you know familiar voices uh, that can bring people into a movie that way and, and extend its life. So uh, it's as, as the stories were getting, you know, maybe a little bit further away from the classics that the Disney was making before, I feel like the kind of interesting characters, new takes on artwork would have definitely been beneficial, but yeah, that's, I agree with you. Sorry for the and, tangent. And, well, no, but, but also remember Walt always wanted his animators to create new things. That's why the shorts were so important. Mm-hmm. By this time, the shorts were gone. But the shorts were their, sort of like their playground and their testing ground. And then he wanted to see some of that brought into the animated films, the feature yeah. films. I, and yeah. I think that they had lost, maybe, maybe they had lost that. And so Call didn't have a place to express that. So he was trying to incorporate it maybe into some of his characters and he was getting that pushback. 
And I, I think that's kind of where Disney is at now, uh, mm-hmm. right now in this time that the animation style that they, they set in stone with tangled and everything forward. It, it's just, it's gotten old. And I know they took a swing with wish and it, that was to varying results, but you have to take those swings. You have to take those chances mm-hmm. if you want to progress forward from there. They broke the mold once. And I think even looking at Pixar, when Pixar breaks the mold, I think I think that's when you get movies that end up being a little bit more long lasting. And, you know, when then when they go back to something that seems familiar, like Lightyear, it, it doesn't do as well. But it's, uh, you know, you got to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. I hate myself for saying that. I I apologize. <laughs> but you, but no, it's true. That's why Walt said it. You know. Now, whilst Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston admired Call's drawings, they felt they were of less and less use to the studio. Johnston felt Call's designs lacked appeal. His drawings and animation were so much of Call's personal signature style, the director Wolfgang Reitherman would not assign them to a junior animator because Call would hit the ceiling. That's a quote. Instead, according to Thomas, they would cut his scenes out. Said Thomas, it started back, well, when Walt was alive. Jungle Book. On Robin Hood, he was impossible. He was a little better on Rescuers because he was doing one character all by himself. In the later years, some of Call's animation had to be thrown out because he wouldn't change it. He wouldn't accept that it needed to be changed. However, Call's supporters would disagree. Brad Bird studied under Call and considers him to be a mentor. He and other supporters believe that Call brought the highest quality animation and strong personal style to what were bland, stylish films. They contend that the other animator should have worked harder or held higher standards, not only in drawing, but in filmmaking. So that is going back to what you were saying, Craig. Yep. Yep. I should have just waited for you to get to that point and uh, say that. But uh, no, I, I mean, I completely agree. It's, I would, I would not call them bland stylist films. I feel like that's a little harsh, but definitely not up to the same, uh, same standards as mm-hmm. uh, previous eras of Disney. I agree. Said Brad Bird of Call, Milt always felt people were not trying to match his standard. He felt they were not applying themselves. He didn't feel he was good just because he was naturally talented, but because he didn't quit. Over time, Call's explosive and frequently abusive outbursts were making some reluctant to follow or support him. Frank Thomas was losing respect for the way Call publicly degraded storyman Larry Clemens, who had recently returned to the studio after his son died in an auto accident, and his callous treatment of Les Clark and John Lounsbury. When he attempted to confront Call about this, he was harshly rebuked. After five or six years of this, said Thomas, I lost respect for him. Call had a long list of complaints about how the studio had been run since the passing of Walt. He thought there was a conspiracy between Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, and Wooly Reitherman, which explained why Frank and Ollie got the best animation roles, and he got the hardest ones to draw. Call was upset that he was not assigned Captain Hook, the Queen of Hearts, and Ichabod Crane to animate. Those characters had been assigned to Frank Thomas. Call ran hot and cold on Reitherman as a director. 
lauding him with praise for his growth and direction, and then nine months later, calling him a junk man for retracing old animation from Snow White for use in Robin Hood. Then a few months later, he'd be praising him again. A few weeks before his retirement, Call was showing rough footage of the rescuers to animation students at CalArts and launched into a litany of his grievances with the studio. He said the film was mediocre and full of, quote, bad taste and terrible judgment, unquote, just like Robin Hood and the Aristocats. He was unhappy that the giant alligators and the rescuers were played for laughs rather than being a convincing menace. He hated the reuse of voice actors from other films, in particular Phil Harris and Ava Gabor. Said Call, there's a tendency nowadays to find something that works and use it forever. That's a rotten way of looking at the business. We've always had our quota of crap in every picture. This is something you have to be philosophical about. The last half a dozen or so, the quote has been too great. You know, when I read this, I thought he could be talking about Disney of today. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I feel like we've already set a couple uh, a couple precedents here that a lot of what was happening in that time period is very reminiscent of today. But I feel like that kind of just comes with it, it just comes with the fact that when you get stuck in those ruts and and you're sticking with the same animators for too long that that's just what's going to happen. You know, people, I don't want to say get, get complacent and i also don't want to make it as an insult. It's, I feel like anyone in, in the film industry should have the option and have the ability to work long, long careers, but uh, it's, you know, you're going to start seeing these same parallels play out each time as people get comfortable in their roles. I guess comfortable is the way, best way to say it without being being offensive on it. And with uh, with comfortability, sometimes that that breeds bad habits, and <laughs> and then that becomes a cyclical thing. You can break yourself out of it, but eventually the next generation is going to fall into it. So on and so on. Repeat history till the end of times, <laughs> which means. Because remember, after this came the renaissance yeah. of Disney films. So there's always hope Disney's going to pull out of this. And let's hope if they have the right people at the studio that they can pull out of this and rediscover their greatness again. Oh, they they will. And I. the problem is, I don't think we've hit rock bottom yet. Like we didn't we haven't reached Black Cauldron times. Um, you know, we're even if comparing it to the Renaissance, like, you know, we, I feel like we're in that teeter totter period where it's like, OK, well, yeah, Lilo and Stitch, not bad. Stitch is kind of annoying and they're pushing them everywhere. But we didn't quite hit home on the range and Chicken Little yet where it really <laughs> felt like this is I, this I is like over, so. I like Chicken Little. <laughs> But um, not okay. home on the range. But um, my my concern is is that we don't have the people, the top people at the studio anymore to pull it out. And I'm hoping I'm wrong, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I you know I like uh, I, I like Jennifer Lee a lot, but also too we we need to see success outside of uh you know we need to see success outside of frozen and uh-huh. really 
really push the boundaries. And I, I think she has it and her and they've they've got a good head on their shoulders. But I, I, I do think that they have to start looking within and listening and seeing what what people are doing and what they have the ability to make. And that's how you get something like Once Upon a Studio that started as a small little passion project and became one of the best things that Disney's done in years and could have potentially never seen the light of day had had it not all worked out the way it is so when when the creative heads on top aren't the ones seeing the future i think they need to they need to be willing to at least listen to who who might have those good ideas under it doesn't mean they need to start a coup and overthrow everyone but admit that you know what i'm i'm happy to give you the resources you need but go and be creative and do great things and mm-hmm. that's that's probably the leadership disney needs right now yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, and, and he was unhappy with reusing Phil Harris and Ava Gabor. May I, may I suggest maybe Aquafina can move on? <laughs> okay. So I, I've got a bone to pick with you on this. We're really just going all over the place. This I finally watched Raya the other night. And I, you know what? I thought it was really, really enjoyable. I loved that movie. I I thought the score was incredible. Aquafina did not bother me one bit. See, she I didn't care crazy. for the film is my problem. Yeah, I didn't like I, it. So I, I have to rewatch it. It did feel very rushed. Like it just I even though it was two hours long, I was like, they really not wasting time with this. But so it was pre- it was definitely overinflated, but Something about the the entire story it had that like it had that slight Miyazaki feel to it, and just it, it felt like mystical and magical, like like I haven't seen in a in a Disney movie in a long time. So I I enjoyed Aquafina in it. So I'm well. That's where she I'm was sorry, at the Michael. start of the beginning. She it's going on and on and on. Now she's hosting some bug series on Disney Plus. She's the Grand Marshal of the Lunar Parade in San Francisco. I mean, oh dear lord. But anyway, yeah. well, I mean Ava Gabor though. She kind of had, I mean, Ava, Ava had that voice that it's, I feel like it's not unique enough, at least with Aquafina, she does a different voice every time. No, she doesn't. It's the same <laughs> voice every time. It's the same character every time. I just wanted to set you off. <laughs> okay. We can get back to the show. <laughs> All righty. Anyway, animator Stan Green recalled calls last day at the studio. He came to my room, shut the door and said, I'm getting the hell out of here. And I want you to finish the balance of the Medusa animation. He handed me a personal drawing, a pile of exposure sheets, his stopwatch and his own little refrigerator then zipped out. Call returned to the San Francisco Bay Area to the town of Greenbrae, just north of Sausalito. There he enjoyed fly fishing, a yearly trip to Europe, and began sculpting 18-inch tall wire sculptures of ballet dancers based on Degas paintings, which were on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum a few years ago for the Nine Old Men exhibit, and they were magnificent. Um, He eventually lost interest. Even though they were three-dimensional, they didn't move said Brad Bird, I felt he was in search of an art form that gave him as much pleasure as animation, and I don't think he ever found it. 
Call grew bored until his daughter introduced him to a Marin General Hospital librarian named Julie, who was an accomplished pianist and student of ballet. They were together two years before marrying on March 21, 1980, the day before Call's 71st birthday. They shared interests in music and dance and were very happily married. Everything Milt liked to do, Julie wanted to do. Said Ken Anderson of the couple, this was probably his best marriage because he was no longer the boss, but he was in love with the boss. Call would occasionally return to the Walt Disney Studio as a consultant, but he found it difficult. This was a new generation of animators who didn't know him or what he had done. Call had prostate cancer, but it was under control. He developed an embolism in his stomach artery that required surgery, and this left him with less energy. One day after lunch, he said, wonder if this is the last good meal I'm going to have on this planet. On a Wednesday shortly afterwards, Call developed a respiratory infection that quickly turned into pneumonia. He was admitted to a Marin hospital where it was discovered he had baseline lung cancer. He passed the following Sunday on Easter, April 19, 1987, at the age of 78. Milk Call's impact on the art of animation and the graphic style of Disney animation for close to 40 years cannot be denied. The beauty of form and movement he was able to create in his characters is striking. He took some of the most difficult animation assignments and made them look effortless at great personal cost. So, Craig, with you as the film analyst for the Diz Unlimited, let's take a look at some of Milk Call's best-known characters. So, in (laughs) (laughs) Pinocchio, the pressure's on, you know. So, in Pinocchio, now we talked about this in our previous episode, how Call redesigned Pinocchio to look like a little boy with wooden joints. And after Pinocchio, Walt came to rely on Call's outstanding draftsmanship and character design skills. And so it was here that Walt, that Call came along at just the right time with extraordinary talent that lent itself to this new art form of animation. I actually think, like when you talked about this in last week's episode, I thought this was brilliant because I am a huge fan of Pinocchio. I mean, I we've talked about it on the show. In terms of this time period, Pinocchio is easily my favorite my favorite movie of that era and I, I for some reason i've never really been a fan of other adaptations of pinocchio even uh last year the guillermo del toro version that was on netflix you know a, a beautiful story done stop motion but i had a lot of trouble connecting to the characters and connecting to Pinocchio and uh, that that's always been the case. And I mean, I've sat through some very bad Pinocchios, uh, the the one that Drew Carey was in the Jonathan Taylor Thomas one, uh, the list goes on and on of, of terrible Pinocchio movies. But I think it really is because of how, of how Milt designed Pinocchio and went with that, that boy forward look of it and then added in the elements of of the woodenness and the 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 puppetry form to it. it it makes all the difference because in other adaptations that you see it really is you lose out on the human aspect you lose out on the you lose out on that that touch of humanity that you believe in the character and that the character can become something else uh it it 
it, like, and that's really with the Gim- Guillermo del Toro version in particular. I I just was not a fan because I wasn't rooting for it. It felt like a puppet that needed to be a puppet throughout its entire journey. Didn't care about the start or finish of it. But with Pinocchio, those the mannerisms are just perfect enough that that you are rooting for Pinocchio the entire the entire time to truly become a real boy. And had had that design looked more wooden pun intended it, it just you wouldn't have gotten there with it it would have mm-hmm. been a complete different movie mm-hmm. yeah i agree with you yeah and then we and we talked about some of his animation on chimney cricket you know and how yeah. just brilliant that was as well oh so. for sure and i mean chimney cricket there's a reason why it, it's it, chimney cricket still remains an icon of disney to this day with Tinkerbell is is one of the the greatest characters. I mean there's nothing on paper Jiminy Cricket should not work at all, but uh again it's an early it's an early sign of of bringing bringing a character to life in a different way versus the the animals of 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 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that had a whimsy to it, a, a comical side to them, uh, felt like they were in a cartoon. Jiminy Cricket also has that same look and feel, but you don't you don't question him at any time in it. He he belongs in that world, and mm-hmm. that comes down to the character design. Yeah, yeah, which was you know was thanks to you know Ward Kimball primarily on that but with you know call doing some of the scenes in there so um now bambi was after pinocchio bambi proved the animators you know provided the animators with new challenges and so uh Walt Disney wanted believable animals in this film so after mark davis prepared character models for the characters with human characteristics call designed the final appearances for the deer and thumper and probably one of the most memorable sequences call animated was the scene which thumper and the other young bunnies encouraged Bambi to jump over a fallen tree because call understood the weight and momentum of every part of Bambi's body to play up the comedy and make the scene believable. And I mean, he's even more impressive for the fact that we know, too, that he didn't rely on reference. Not that I I feel like it would be very, very difficult to get a deer struggling to jump over and how that whole scene would play out with an actual uh, live action reference. But uh, it in terms of how characters move uh he you know we know that with his his human characters that he understood that to a t and was able to also carry that over into into the animals and even even beyond that i i feel like the animals and bambi are and kind of even with pinocchio too a little bit but the the animals and bambi are when you start to to really work on the eyes and bring out character through that way uh something like you know we joke in modern cgi movies that there there's so many times and opportunities to get that that dead eye look that just does not feel right uh and it does it but i think that's part of what does make bambi work is that when you're looking at those characters there it's you know they're 
they're animals running around the forest. It, you shouldn't have believability in them, but the eyes are, are kind of the pathway into those characters. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's uh, th- there's a lot happening there, but just everything about it, the the movement, the actual look of the the animals, it's it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean the backgrounds too, but that's uh, um, you know I can't I can't remember the Disney Legends name that did all the incredible backgrounds for Bambi, but Tyrus Wong, Tyrus Wong, thank mm-hmm. you, that's, mm-hmm. and that's why you're the Dis historian, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> now, Carl also animated the scenes between the adult Bambi and Feline, which included the scenes where they fall in love. You know, where she kisses him and then he falls yeah. backwards into the water and all that. And it, so this is a good combination of realism and sort of cartoonish comedy. Yeah, it, it, not my favorite, uh, even in the movie itself. It's uh, it, it, this one's a little bit harder to, to grasp on to. But again, I, I mean, they're still making it work and it doesn't detract from anything in the movie and just taking that approach with deer and figuring out how it would all work uh, yeah you have to celebrate him for it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now song of the south call used story man pete bill pete's drawings as inspiration for the final designs of brer fox brer bear and Br'er Rabbit. And these characters gave Call a chance to be much broader with his animation, something he always enjoyed. Um, Bill Pete's drawings and the voice actors provided Call with the foundation for that split second timing and fast transitions. So this is a lot of times this real quick animation yes. with the characters. Yeah, very quick. And I mean, it plays into the timing of uh, the animated portions of the movie. I, I mean, it's it's fast and it, it is it's kind of fast, especially with like the, the Br'er Fox, Br'er Rabbit way it slows down a little bit with Br'er Bear. But I, you know, it, it, everything that came together with these animated sections are why we remember the animated sections at all. Some people out there will, you know, point to. <laughs> point to splash mountain as being the only reason why people remembered them but no they were they were replayed we know that through you know disneyland television series and i they were re-released it was re-released to the theaters until the 80s exactly exactly but i mean it thrived on the animated segments because they they kept the pace of that movie moving if you've you've watched it in modern times it no offense to other parts of the movie and not getting into any of the the dramatics with it and any of the issues with it but for sure the the animated portions are what what would solidify that movie as like okay this is this is worth watching even even though there's problematic parts with it too but i i think the animated portions really really keep that movie together and keep mm-hmm. it more complete oh i agree yeah definitely All right. Cinderella. Carl was very happy when the studio returned to animating feature films, and he was considered to be the studio's most experienced top animator at this point in the 1950s. He supervised the self-important king and the willing-to-please duke. The characters were a contrast of rounded versus straight lines with a focus on beautifully drawn hands that was to become Carl's trademark. 
but perhaps the most beloved character in the film was Carl's fairy godmother. He developed her to be a warm, sympathetic character with a touch of absent-mindedness that provided lots of acting opportunities. Call once said, never underestimate the benefit of props, and he used the magic wand to complement the fairy godmother's movements and acting performance. I mean, and I feel like you got props in, too, with the Duke, even with the the glass slipper and -hmm. such, too. And, I mean, his characters in Cinderella, I do feel like besides the the mice uh they're what really brings the 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 comic relief to it some people might say the stepsisters but i've never i found them to be more grating than anything else but uh i i feel like i feel like the fairy godmother and uh, the king and the duke it's just there is a warmth to them and they're absolutely there's there's a relief. It's a complete opposite from the looks of, of Cinderella and the stepmother and, and so many other characters in the film. So I, I feel like they round out the, they, they round out all the different, the kind of the, the different styles of characters that you could have in a movie and you should have, they'd be like the, um, you know, they'd be like character actors today where you know, they pop up in every single movie and you're like oh yeah i recognize that person from this and this and this and that's kind of how i feel about his characters in cinderella that you know is that we could have seen the the fairy godmother pop up in a, another movie just you know redressed in a different way and be like yeah yeah i definitely know her <laughs> and i love that they have that feel they have a, it's a familiarity to those characters and mm-hmm. you know a little bit of a little bit of fun with them too mm-hmm. yeah so now in Alice in Wonderland, Call animated Alice along with Mark Davis and Ali Johnston. Live Alec, live action references were used for Alice, and although Call disliked using live action reference, he said, "If you deal with human characteristics, it is necessary. If everyone on the movie was a milk Call, it wouldn't be necessary. But unfortunately, they aren't, so it is necessary." So. Call's ability to animate emotions brings Alice to life, especially during the court trial, as she expresses a range of emotions from anger to disbelief. And he also like animated her trying to corral the flamingo during the croquet match. And uh, so the just the level of movement, and he made her move so freely and openly. I mean, it really was... It, it it brought a freshness, I think, to that film. Yeah, no, it's uh, it it definitely has an impact on it, and you you can see the emotions coming through. And you know, I I love the whimsy of Alice in Wonderland, but I do find Alice to be pretty flat through many portions of the movie but specifically the parts that he worked on i feel like that actually does elevate alice in in those moments but it also the the drama the comedy everything that's going with it like you you need you need alice to be involved in that you need to care about the character so i think he found a way to actually make you care about alice as a person rather than just care about the journey that she's going on Mm -hmm. I agree. 
Now, in Peter Pan, despite wanting to animate Captain Hook, Walt assigned Call to animate Peter Pan and Wendy. This was when Call began to complain he was being assigned characters that were boring and no fun. So Ward Kimball responded, yes, but you are so good at the boring stuff. Even though Call claimed he didn't find the character of Pan interesting, his animation of the character certainly was. Humans don't fly, but Call made it believable with Pan's upper body arriving first, whilst his lower body slowly catches up. Pan is a caricature of Bobby Driscoll, who voiced the character, and his design is somewhere between a boy and a teenager, with just the right amount of realism. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I kind of feel like it does it it does bode the same outcome with Alice. Uh, I, I do see Peter Pan and Wendy as boring characters, and I, I I still watch Peter Pan every now and then, but I I'm not attracted by the Peter and Wendy story of it. I I really am hooked on Captain Hook, so I I definitely see where Call was coming from, but they're you know that's not to say that the the movement uh, behind Peter Pan and and Wendy and any of the other characters isn't isn't spectacular. There's there's some really great moments of of animation in there, and uh, they they bring them to life. You really do believe that that kids can fly in that way. But yeah, I'm not. I, the older I get, the less the less impressed I am with, with, with the characters, particularly in Peter Pan. I just mm-hmm. wish they were more vibrant. Hmm. Yeah. I enjoy Peter Pan. I really like it. So I, I, it's a good film, but I agree. Wendy is a little bland. Peter, I find interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, but I think it's more because of his animation and, and his, his flying about and all that. I think yeah. it's oh, captured so well. It makes it interesting. Yeah. Peter Peter helps. It feels like I mean it feels like Peter is trying to carry the entire cast. Not to not to <laughs> say it in that way, but he is. And you know, obviously Bobby Driscoll's voice that that helps bring him to life too. It's a one two combination that really works, but you know, I'm not in terms of the other characters surrounding Wendy and the kids and you know, even some of the lost boys, it's just I and I don't know something doesn't connect like it did when I was a kid anymore, yeah. and that, that's okay though. I I fell into the story of Peter Pan. I grew up, so now I'm just old and crotchety. <laughs> uh, you're Mister Darling now. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So for Lady and the Tramp, realistic animals are once again needed, and Call designed all the dog characters. With Frank Thomas, he focused on Tramp. And when we first meet Tramp, he's sleeping in a rain barrel, stretches and takes a shower under a rain gutter. This animation is so well done that it perfectly communicates Tramp's personality. His yawn makes the audience yawn. His reaction to rainwater makes the audience feel its coldness. Yeah. I I feel like he came full circle with work that he did on Bambi and animals and really, really came through with, with lady and the tramp. And, you know, there, there, there's a realness to these dogs. There's, mm-hmm. it, they do convey every, every single aspect of these animals, the, the way that makes them feel realistic to the point that you want to take home tramp and you want to save mm-hmm. him from the position he's in all, all the, all the dogs in this movie. It's, it's just a remarkable job. 
Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I find these dogs more believable than the l- live action remake they did for Disney Plus. I- I'll let you know <laughs> when I finally watch that, never. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Now, in Sleeping Beauty, Walt asked Call to supervise the animation of Prince Philip. And this was an assignment called Despised because the role didn't call for any interesting emotional changes in the character. Uh, Call said, you know, he was just a nice guy who falls in love and not the type of animation you can get your teeth into. Although he did a good job with him. Yeah. You know, and, and the movements and, and all that. He, he, he also animated, though, the scenes between King Stefan and King Hubert, which did give Call another opportunity for broader animation, because these characters were designed with more caricature, which allowed for broader acting and expressions. Yeah, it's I, I feel like it, it kind of like a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, they gave him they gave him room to to make to bring characters to life like he did in Cinderella. And that really did work with the Kings. But at the same time, he had to go back to some of the boring side with, with Philip. And I know you're a, you're a pretty big sleeping beauty fan, but yeah, I, it's another one for me where I just, I find, I find Prince Philip to be very flat. I mean, I'm watching, I'm watching sleeping beauty for the fairies and Maleficent. (laughs) Not even her as much, but I I don't have a problem with her, but I, I feel like, I feel like it's all of the other side characters that, that help make it more interesting. So I, I feel bad. He, he really did get a string of, uh, you know, some not so great jobs in there, not so great assignments, but although I think the scene with Prince Philip and Aurora in the forest is good when they're dancing and, you know, the, the horse throws him off into the water and the way he looks at the heart. I, I think there are some good scenes that Carl was able to capture with Philip. Otherwise, yeah, Philip doesn't do a lot until he battles Maleficent. Yeah, of course, so, you know, so now in 101 Dalmatians, this film marked a change in the Disney style. For the first time, animation would not be hand inked on the cells and would instead be Xeroxed. So Call and the other animators were delighted that their own drawings would be on screen. And Call felt that the cleanup artists often misinterpreted or ruined his original drawings. Uh, Milt animated scenes with Pongo and Perdita, but his main assignment were Roger and Anita. Although there were live-action references, Call's graphic design and animation looks more interpreted rather than realistic. And this was a new direction for Call. It's a direction that I I enjoy, especially with Roger. I like kind of the... uh, a little bit more of the harshness with Roger, you know, the the sharp nose. And uh, Anita does still have a very classic look to her. feels like she could be a Disney princess if you just change change the outfit. But, you know, I, I feel like with Roger, that was an, a nice broad strep, stretch, a little, a little bit of goofiness to it. And, uh, you know, it, about Pongo and Perdita, it's all you have to do is say the same thing about Lady and the Tramp as Bambi before he... He, he kind of understood how to take animals that that shouldn't be alive in such a real world and just finds that right balance to make them make them feel very believable. Mm-hmm. 
Then we come to Sword in the Stone. There are a lot of interesting and imaginative characters in Sword in the Stone. Cause set the style for the characters, and he developed Merlin Wart, Sir Kay, and Sir Ector. He and Frank Thomas shared the animation of sequences with Madame Mim, who turned out to be one of Call's favorite characters. This moody, bizarre witch provided Call with the kind of material he liked to work with instead of more realistic characters. Um, like when Madame Mim introduces herself to Wart, who had been transformed into a bird, she breaks out in a wild dance that demonstrates her unpredictability and captures her zany personality. Yeah. And I mean, you can tell that this is Milt just being able to let go and let loose and, and definitely show a, a crazier side to the characters. And I, I mean, I, I feel like with Madame Mim in particular, if you remember a lot about Sword of the Stone, it's basically her. And when he pulls the sword from the stone, <laughs> and then maybe a little bit in between here and there. So he, he found a way to uh, uh, to definitely make a character almost bigger than the movie itself. And that's that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the wizard's duel. Too in that. Oh yeah, that's that's another good scene. I yeah. I need to rewatch Sword in the Stone. It, it's been a while for me on that one. Now, Mary Poppins during the Jolly Holiday sequence, which is a mix of live action and animation, call animated the confused and exhausted fox who is saved from a pack of hunting dogs by Bert, played by Dick Van Dyke, and it's cute, cute yeah. little. Panty Fox. I like that he had a little Irish. I think it was Irish lilt to him. Couldn't tell if it was yeah. Irish or Scottish. Yeah. But um for sure. Falls yeah. in line again with with uh hundred one Dalmatians mm-hmm. and and all the other animal characters. It, it works. Not not the you know, it's kind of a thankless a thankless character to draw, but it it works all together in the scene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So now in Jungle Book all of the characters were designed by Kaw, and they were based on sketches by Bill Pete and Ken Anderson. So Milt started the animation on all the characters with the exception of the elephants. And his tour de force was the villainous tiger Shere Khan, which was designed and animated by Kaw. He started out by studying Disney live action films like Jungle Cat and the Tiger Walks. It was Ken Anderson who suggested the tiger be a suave, above it all villain. Call combined this idea with the personality of voice actor George Sanders, creating a subtle, sly tiger who holds back until the end of the film when he strikes. Call knew exactly how to use his draftsmanship skills to animate the tiger from the movement of his body and stripes to show how a real big cat walks through the forest. The movement of the tiger's shoulders with his legs and paws communicates the weight of the cat. His expressions convey power, authority, and arrogance. No one had seen animation like this before. And I mean, I'll speak for myself at least, and probably a lot of other kids out there where, you know, you you hear about tigers, uh, predator animals like that. And I I immediately jump to thinking about Jungle Book and, you know, even to an extent, Lion King in that way. You watch a nature documentary, seeing little bits and pieces, but that menacing side that you know of these, these predator cats, that's, that's 
partially to thank because of stuff like like Jungle Book. And I, I'll be honest, I, I don't think we'd have Lion King be as realistic and as impressive as it is without Jungle Book. But I'm also I, I really love Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's one of my favorites. I love every single character. I love the music in it. I you know it is it it, it bounces around a lot and uh, the the. Vultures, you know, maybe maybe a little bit too too far with them, but I I feel like I, I just feel like every every character works, and it's a great representation of what you would expect them to be in the wild, but also being really good caricatures of of the different arcs of the the characters you need from the the villains to the the you know helpless sidekicks and to the oafs with blue it's it's just it's all covered you can Mm -hmm. you know you watch you watch plenty of other movies and and comedies and you can easily pinpoint and draw a line to to stereotypical characters and other and other works of the literature and movies as as you can to jungle book it all it all works there you know probably a lot of that's from the jungle book book but uh, it all it all works together. You mm-hmm. got to bring that inspiration in from everywhere. Oh, definitely. Now, in the Aristocats, Call was assigned the humans on this film. He animated Madame Bonfamille, however you say Bonfamille. I don't yeah. know how she says her name. With Grace, Poison Control, George's Hot Hot Court, the lawyer with an aging charm whose knees wobble but is young at heart. <laughs> And the villain Edgar the Butler with comedy and broad expressions. Yeah, it's and these characters have that harshness about them too. And uh, you know, even even uh, Madame, who you know, the, aging gracefully and beautiful, still the the way the line work on the face. Mm-hmm. There's there's a harshness to it that. Just it's where you start to get those different characters that I do feel like I I still like the Aristocats, but you're starting to make that transition to to a different quality of movie. And you're also seeing the animated, the live action characters here definitely change. I mean, Edgar is a is just a a classic, classic character. And yeah, as you you said, with uh, the lawyer, with the the knob, the wobbly knees like (laughs) that's that is just so spot on and so so different from really anything else that came before with disney so i i love i love the actual uh the live character looks in it and you know oddly enough with it too like i feel like the aristocats is is also a transition period where you know unlike lady and the tramp i felt like the animals blended into that human world in in this one as much i don't always get that with the with the cats it seems like they're given a lot of freedom uh to do some crazy crazy things in the real world and the humans do do ground it a little bit more so that's probably because of milk Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I always loved it when Edgar's riding his little motor scooter and every time it backfires, his derby hat pops yeah. up on his head. I just oh. love that. Oh, the the looks on his <laughs> face when, you know, he goes uh, down the stairs, like when the dogs are attacking him and he goes down the stairs and then comes back up and they switch positions <laughs> on the motorcycle. I mean, that's yeah. just so, such good humor. animation. Yeah. 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 Oh, so good. 
Now, bed knobs and broomsticks, Call didn't have a large role in the animated scenes. He designed the players in the soccer game, but didn't animate the sequence. He did develop the turbulent relationship between King Leonidas and the secretary bird. Now, that was about it. Even, yeah, I that's I don't really have anything to input on that. Yeah. I need to rewatch bed knobs yeah. clearly. <laughs> yeah, now for Robin Hood. Prior to the animation of the film, Ken Anderson created many characters and scene sketches. Milt finalized these designs and animated key scenes with Robin Hood, Lady Cluck, Friar Tuck. He also animated Ellen Adale and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Now, the animation of Robin Hood showed the new direction Disney animation was going towards, influenced largely by Call. The Disney style had changed from dimensionally drawn, often cartoony characters to designs that were influenced by modern graphics. The acting had also changed. The characters in Robin Hood often demonstrate subtle human behavior um, than earlier Disney films. Call was also adding a characteristic to some of his characters, often called the milk call head swaggle. When a character rattles or moves their heads from side to side, usually when they're feeling cocky, self-assured, or self-important. And this can be seen in the characters of Edgar the Butler, King Leonidas, Little John, Sheriff of Nottingham, Sher Khan, and Tigger. So this not only defined Call's characters, but Call himself. I and I feel like Robin Hood to an extent is kind of a, a spiritual successor to Jungle Book. It's that that next generation that you really do get that that more humanistic behavior, and it's 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 not one of my favorites. I I appreciate it for for what it is, uh, but I you know I like I like the the chances that they, they took with it. I really appreciated it as a kid. Um, I, I really liked watching it as a kid. I think as an adult, I'm just not, it's, it's attracted to the storytelling and the characters as much, but I feel like it's, it's, uh, you know, it's candy for kids. And if you grew up during the, the eighties, uh, you probably cited Robin hood as one of your favorite movies. Mm-hmm. So My son it, did. Yeah. yeah it, it grabbed one generation. <laughs> yeah. That and and Jungle Book were my son's two favorite Disney films growing up. Good taste, at least in half. (laughs) But yeah, Robin Hood was not one of my favorites. I think it disturbed me that the human animals, they had human heads and and human, they had animal heads, but human bodies. Really bothered me. I don't know why. (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, maybe that's why i mean i feel like zootopia kind of has a similar look too maybe that's why i'm not i don't like that maybe so, maybe you know, kind of has that same feel it might might just be connected in my brain somewhere now the rescuers um as we mentioned earlier madame medusa would be called final assignment with the walt disney studio he was inspired by the voice of actress geraldine page and as some have speculated, his second wife, Phyllis Bounds, uh, no live action reference was used. She was a total creation of call. Madame Medusa's headstrong, bizarre, and not to be ignored. Her soft, flabby, middle-aged body provides a large range of movement. Her expressions are both repulsive and captivating. Uh, Ka also animated her sniveling henchman, Mr. Snoops, who was inspired by animation historian John Culhane. And he also did some of the establishing scenes with the alligators Nero and Brutus. 
Yeah, these characters, I mean, Madame Medusa and Mr. Snoops are, uh, they are repulsive to me. <laughs> like, I don't like looking at them. It's partially why I'm not a huge fan of uh, Rescuers. I am a much bigger fan of uh, Rescuers Down Under in mm-hmm. terms of the storytelling. I I like it. This was, this is gritty animation and madame medusa you know she does have those 101 dalmatian kind of feels in that way with Mm -hmm. uh you know maybe maybe a different kind of ugly from cruella Deville, but i she i just find her so disturbing it's it's in the eyes it's in the body the body feels like it feels both whimsical and realistic at the same time, too. Like, it could be an SNL character of someone who's just kind of crazy and, and lost their way. And, yeah, I just I, I get the same thing from Mr. Snoops. I just don't like looking at him, that ratty little mustache and <laughs> just the, his, the way he carries himself and that the plump on the bottom body. Oh, it's... <laughs> I, it bothers me so much. So I, I guess I got to give Milk credit that he he created characters that were so so bizarre that I just don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like Nero and Brutus? I mean, I, I'm I'm fine with them, but I'm <laughs> it's you know you know I don't really like alligators either. So <laughs> just stay away from the waters. <laughs> yep, that's right. Uh, I'm thinking of a quote. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> no one talked about that. After, after he retired, Carl came to appreciate the achievements of Walt Disney's nine old men as a whole and was proud of them. Even when he was most frustrated with the studio, he always praised the work of Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, and Frank Thomas. However, he never made peace with Johnston and Thomas. He did write to let them know he thought their book, Disney Animation, The Illusion of Life, was, quote, great. Call's directness and ability to alienate people may be undeniable, but it is also undeniable that his hard work, superb draftsmanship, and animation skills defined the Disney style for decades and inspired generations of animators. And Call lives on in the many characters he gave life to and that we continue to enjoy. And now it's time for this week in Disney history. All right. I Is it my turn this week to start? It is your turn. That's what I thought. All right. This week, I'm starting out with February 2nd, 1967. And this is when Roy O. Disney outlines his late brother's plan to build a theme park. And most interestingly, the world's first futuristic metropolis, or Epcot. So um, this is when Walt Disney Productions announced it's going to build the world's first glass-domed city in Central Florida. So there was a film presentation. It was narrated by Walt Disney, who had died on December 15th, 1966. So we know it was the last thing he created. Um, is termed by officials as Walt's last film. And it's entitled Project Florida, A Whole New Disney World. And it premiered at the Park East Theater in Winter Park, Florida at 2 p.m., where it is screened for business and government figures. The 25-minute film shows a 50-acre air-conditioned City of Tomorrow centered in a 1,000-acre 
industrial park between Orlando and Kissimmee. And um, very ambitious, very inspiring film. Uh, I think I've seen it multiple times. I'm I'm thinking that even though it might have started out doing well, I think it, I don't know, I'm thinking today it probably would have struggled. Yeah. It's concept given, you know, with, you know, would the, the companies that, you know, that they thought would be in the industrial park, would they even be around today? You know, yeah. given manufacturing is outsourced now and the way, you know, we do so many things online and, you know, all those homes and buildings, how would they, you know, a lot of them would need a lot of refurbishing in those buildings after, you know, all these years. And I, I think yeah, it, I, it would be tough today. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think it, I don't think it could have sustained to this day, to be quite honest. I I think I, I just I, I don't think it was. I, I think we're better off for what we got. And I, I you know, I, there's some spectacular things that were able to happen on Walt Disney World property because they had to change the direction with everything. But yeah, I am I'm kind of happy about it because I also, you know, there, there's so much good things that have come from it, but it's, it's an idea that, you know, had Walt lived another 30 years, I, I think we'd be sitting here saying, yeah, it would have been cool if, if Florida would have turned out more like what was originally planned. But I, yeah, we, we just live in such a different world. I don't, I don't know if it could have, you know, if it could have survived 50 years, hundred years, however long they would have planned to have it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would have been tough. You know, if, you know, maybe there would have been people that would have figured out a way to sustain it, but I think it, it its concept would have had to have changed because the world has changed so much. Yeah. The world has changed and it's also, it's so much more business oriented now. I feel like it's one of those things where unless you could figure out a way to monetize it in an even bigger way uh, beyond how it already was, like how, how do you make more money? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, I don't know if that would be possible. Yeah. Oh, well, but it was a, it was a wonderful dream. Yeah. And, and a lot of what he talked about, you know, they did use some of the technology and concepts in in the park yeah and it's just it's inspirational at the Mm -hmm. very least and it you know i feel like we're we're left with with an idea and a vision that you know fans of walt carry with them and that's that's almost more important than anything that that last that last idea of him being still just so positive and future forward. It's something that, you know, it's something that Disney fans hold near and dear. Yeah. They're trying actually up here in Northern California, there it's a bit of a controversy, but developers have um, bought up land and they've, they've strong, they strong armed some of the farmers and all that to get their land um, in or, and they want to build city of tomorrow. And all that. Unfortunately, they want to do it next to one of our largest military bases, and that's part of the controversy. <laughs> Good, but uh, but um, it's interesting. To, it'll be interesting to see what their concept is, because it's nothing like Walt's. 
Yeah. Anyway, but uh, no mon- uh, no uh, you know people movers and stuff. Maybe a monorails and all that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it doesn't look too different to me than what we have now, but we shall see. But it's yeah, on. I mean, the, it's going to be on the ballot. It has to be voted on. Hey, here's the thing: the city that was built today will eventually become the city of tomorrow. <laughs> you just got to wait a day, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, such positive thinking. Well, uh, I am going to uh, switch gears here and talk about uh, someone who I believe should be a Disney legend. On February 6th of 1957, Kathy Najimy was yeah. born. And, you know, I, I know I like to, to rally on this show a lot about how is how is Tom Hanks still not a Disney legend and uh, last last ceremony or was it the one before? I can't even remember now, but uh, Bette Midler became a Disney legend and, you know, didn't even show up. But it's not bitter about that at all. It happens. Things happen. But, you know, when you think of Kathy and Jimmy, I feel like there's an argument to be made that she should have been a Disney legend before even Bette Midler. Uh, she's she, been in a lot of Disney related film, you know, under the umbrella of Disney. She's been in yeah, a lot. When, exactly. When you consider a uh, touchstone in it too, uh, sister act, sister act two, uh, you know, it's right after Whoopi. It's, I feel like Kathy and Jimmy is, is, the number two is uh, mm-hmm. Sister Mary Patrick and, you know, obviously Mary Sanderson in Hocus Pocus and Hocus Pocus 2. Uh, she was um, she was one of the characters as part of Alien Encounter. Uh, and oh, that's that, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, been gone for a while, but still important. Uh, she was the the um, the love interest of uh, of. Um, the uh, one of the two love interests in Wally that you know they mm-hmm. they broke out of their cycle and and uh, saw the ways that that they were being and and Wally opened their eyes to to what more could be out there. So uh, she has that Pixar touch in her too. And and then I, it's funny that you and I were talking about uh, about King of the Hill as well too, because of course that's now under. The Disney umbrella it is on of 20th Century yeah. Fox, uh-huh. and yeah. you know how many episodes has she done as Peggy Hill, and will and she do? So she's brilliant, and and how she came up with that voice, I will never know. I know it's, it's so simple <laughs> and not too far off from hers, but it, it it's still it, it's still so iconic. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm between Sister Act movies, Hocus Pocus, Wall-E, uh, uh, King of the Hill, and that it doesn't count all the other little voices she's done, little things she's done with Disney over the years. It, she should be a Disney legend. So. Yeah, if people who have been on one ABC television show can be a Disney legend, because I feel we've lowered our standards so yeah. much that, um, or well, we meaning them, um, yeah, she should. She's definitely should be on the roster. At some point, hopefully in the next couple of years, but I feel like she's prime. She has an impact on the parks. She's got an impact in uh, cartoons and live action and touchstone. Mm -hmm. It's all there. I mean, it's I'll make the case for her this time. And pretty soon I'll make the case for Patrick Warburton, too, because 
I think he, you know, as, as soon as they changed over Soren to Soren around the world and they kept his intro, yeah. I feel like at that point he cemented. If you couldn't even change the intro, he's a Disney legend. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> They didn't even true. keep Gary Sinise around for, for, for <laughs> Mission Space. They yeah. they booted him. So. Uh, but yeah, that's Kathy Najimy, born February 6, 1957. Oh, okay. So she's around my age, right? So now speaking of television and all that so we used to talk about disney plus all the time and then well as it out of all the streaming all the streaming um i don't know what you call them platforms services services that is it that was the number one i watched to now the least the one i watched the least and um and so what are you watching on it i know that echo has been on a purse which did not get good reviews. Percy Jackson and Olympians got great reviews. Is Rory watching Bluey and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse yet? And he, so he watches Bluey. Uh, we he does. He's not super interested in Bluey yet. Like he loves the uh, he loves the theme song, and he mm-hmm. gets so excited and dances during the theme song. Oh, okay. uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse is a little frantic for him. He doesn't he doesn't attach. But uh, I've been playing uh one or two depending on how kylie's watching over my shoulder i've been playing one or two uh classic mickey mouse shorts for him each day and he is glued to the television and that's why she's cut down on it because i tried (laughs) to show him like three in a row and she's like you you can't do this his he's literally his face is like drooping as he's watching it he's that enthralled with it and you know he'll he still like moves. He'll he'll like as soon as Goofy comes on the screen, it's uh, and like you know baby <laughs> talk for all of them. He, uh-huh. We we know which character he's he's pointing out now, so we've we've learned the way he says says them. But he just gets so excited. Um, so that's been that's been the two primary things. I I haven't started Echo yet and Percy Jackson. I am going to watch those. Uh, I'm I fell behind on Apple TV with the. With uh, the Godzilla show, the Monarch show, and mm-hmm. then now they have the new uh, Masters of Air show. That's the third in the Band of Brothers series with Steven Spielberg's and Tom Hank producing it. So, like, I'm just I've fallen behind on all these other platforms that I'm like, yeah, it's I do want to watch Echo and Percy Jackson, but that's that's going to come after you know a lot of a lot of the other ones but i have been also watching you know i've been going back and watching the animated movies that i haven't watched before or haven't really watched in a long time so uh like i mentioned i i watched raya finally that was nice and uh, i watched emperor's new groove because one of my favorite podcasts was covering it and like i don't think i've ever given it a fair chance so i went and rewatched it and i don't like emperor's new groove <laughs> That's <laughs> it's not my groove. And uh but I, I've been doing been doing a lot of that. But yeah, it's uh, honestly I find myself going to YouTube more often than not to watch Disney content because all the content I'm looking for is not on Disney Plus. 
like sing along songs, which it would be so ripe to be I on yeah. Disney Plus would just be an absolute hit. Why they're not on there? They're I, I don't know, but that's that's there. And like we're starting to run out of Mickey Mouse Mickey Mickey Mars Mickey Mouse cartoons. So now I'm going to YouTube to pull up ones that aren't on Disney Plus. So it's yeah, YouTube YouTube's almost coming in handy more than Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. I know that the Marvels is going to be on in February. I haven't seen that film. I, I so, liked it. Yeah, okay. it's. Uh, I enjoyed it. February for Disney Plus, though. It's again, it's not, it's not looking good. I there, hope there's they a surprise new, us. There's a new Pixar Spark short self coming. But, so. uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. and that's good. I'm I'm happy about that, and it's going to be nice to have Marvels on there. But I mean, beyond that, it's we get back. Um, you know, Bad Batch season three is starting. So for fans of that show, um, that's that's great that it's coming up with its final season. I still haven't started it. I need to. So that way, hopefully I can finish as the series ends. Uh, the one thing I am excited about in February is the uh, uh, the I forget how you pronounce it. The Iwaju. The, the yes, I was uh, seeing series that. that's yeah. done with Kugali, the African uh, animation studio. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had when I was on that uh, when I was on that uh, New Orleans trip for Tiana's Bayou Adventure, the person they brought in from Walt Disney Animation uh, to kind of talk to us, like how how they did the animation research trips for princess and the frog back in the day. He, mm-hmm. uh, he talked to me a lot about this because he's, he's on this project and he said it's spectacular, but back oh, then good. in okay. May, he was like, I don't know when it's actually going to see the light of day, but it's, it's supposedly fantastic. And I'll tell you what, he was not, um, he did not shy away from uh, shooting criticism out towards disney and and towards the products like he he told me stuff that they worked on he's like i did not i don't care for that i don't i i just not a huge fan of it but this this new series uh has him very excited so i remember they talked about it at d23 expo as one of the upcoming things and i was excited about it then so i'm so i'm like okay i'll add that to my list yeah, you know, I, and I do have to get back to. I was watching, rewatching all of the animated films, and I got to Fox and the Hound, and I just sort of forgot about it. So I have to get back. Yeah, to that. We're gonna. We Rory needs to grow up, obviously, a little bit more mm-hmm. since he's only uh, 14, 15 months, fifteen coming on fifteen months. So he's still not at the point where he's really paying attention to anything that's longer than five or six minutes. Uh, but I'm very excited to start showing him the the animated movies i i really want to go with the the full progression starting with snow white all the mm-hmm. way through that's I, i'm just fun. i'm so excited for that but we got, we got a ways there so i i like at least that the mickey cartoons i showed him the band concert uh the other day <laughs> oh and, that's a fun one for a little oh, one who likes me- he, movement he but. loved it the movement and you know he still picked up on like goofy in there even though it was still early goofy and donald duck was cracking him up every time he was pulling a new flute out and <laughs> uh and at the end of it when 
finally, after the tornado and everything came crashing down, he just started clapping. <laughs> it was just, oh man, he loved it so. He sounds much, very so. sophisticated for a fifteen-month-old. I'm very impressed. You know what? I'm doing doing my best. So he just <laughs> actually, literally today, he finally started like really walking by himself. So we're like, wow. When, when he figures something out, he he latches on and i i was kind of goading him the first couple times with like kind of showing him where to laugh in the cartoons by laughing myself and then i stopped and then he just he picked it up he started mm-hmm. understanding the humor and and saw the little funny bits and i'm like well you know what and you might not be book smart one day but you're at least gonna understand <laughs> uh comedy and storytelling in that way so well i'll take it as a win <laughs> yeah yeah that's great of course now it's a whole new world once they start walking so. i'm ready for it i'm my back hurts <laughs> well yeah, now you might now, have to start running because then they start taking off now, now that now that he's walking, there's uh, there's two options uh, when we go to, to to Walt Disney World. He can be in the stroller or he can walk. I'm not carrying him anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, that's great. So, well, I use several resources for this episode, including um, books: Walt Disney's Nine Old Men and the Art of Animation by John Canemaker. The Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspiration from Disney's Great Animators by Andreas Deja. Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation by Don Hahn and Charles Solomon. Some websites and articles I took a look at include Milt Call, that was written by D23. Milt Call, Master Puppeteer by Tracy Timmer for the Walt Disney Family Museum. Milt Call by Jordan Beeks. Career Highlights, Milt Call by Eli Sanza for Entertainment Junkie Blog. The Famous Call of Disney by Matt Call, who is no relation to Milt. Um, And then The Milt Call Head Swaggle by Milt Royoko for Cartoon Brew. There are some great videos besides the one I mentioned last week that I came across. The the one I mentioned was Disney Family Album um, by Milt on Milt Call. But then there's Richard Williams Remembers Milt Call and the Jungle Book. Getting to know Milt Call, Milt Call in Dallas. And some of these, the, those couple were actually ones that Andreas Deshaw posted on his um, YouTube feed. And then Richard Williams discusses Milt Call. So in some of these, um, you get to actually meet Milt Call. And then Richard Williams was, a, a, as I mentioned in the previous episode, was a very good friend of Milt's. So he talks about him in there. So, and Milt respected Richard Williams' work. Well, I think when he first saw Richard Williams' animation, he wanted to know who was this genius. So he had a great respect for him. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me uh, throughout the Diz Unlimited network of shows. You can uh, email me, Craig, at DisneyInfo.com. And you can uh, always find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can connect with me um, on Twitter and Bowling121, Facebook, Michael Bowling, dash Connecting with Walt, Instagram, Michael Bowling, the Diz. You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt.
If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>